Good morning, church. Great to see you, everyone. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Advent here at Union Chapel. Advent, of course, is the time of year when we anticipate, we are patiently waiting in expectation for God to do something great. And of course, the first Advent was a holy, precious moment, the birth of Jesus Christ. So we'll be celebrating that all month, and I know that'll be meaningful for you. Today, I want to talk about an aspect of Christmas that perhaps uh, would be most encouraging to you, and that is under the title of Scandalous Love. And just before uh, we uh, open the scripture and read that, let me just uh, give a, uh, another encouragement to you to try to attend on Wednesday night this week on the 8th for our vision night. This is going to be a, a very uh, special event, I think, perhaps even historic uh, there have already been hundreds and hundreds of people sign up to come, and so I know many of you are interested in this. I, I, I just want to say that there will be things that I, I'm going to share with you Wednesday night that you will not hear on the weekends. We're not going to put it online. Some of the things I will say uh, are in reference to spiritual discernment that I have and experiences that I've been having that, that give some perspective to what we can expect in the future and it's not for global consumption, so it won't, it won't, be, it won't be online. Uh, I'm not sure we'll even record it. And um, so you'll have to be here on, on campus uh, to hear some of the things I'll be sharing. And it's very exciting. I think it's uh, very important. So I hope that you, you can come. And that's on Wednesday starting at 6. So today's the last day to sign up so we can buy enough cheesecake, okay? Looking forward to it. Our text this morning then is from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, uh, Hosea is one of the minor prophets, and I'm sure you've been reading devotionally from Hosea this week, and so this will be very <laughs> current to you. Um, Hosea prophesied uh, during the period of the kings uh, and under the rule of Jeroboam II. This is when the kingdom was divided, and he prophesied to Israel. And this entire book is related to his relationship with his wife, Hosea the husband, and Hosea's wife's name was Gomer. And so we pick up the story here in chapter 3. Our custom is to hear God's word by standing and honoring that. Thank you for doing that, as you're able. In verse 1, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God, David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. May God inspire us through this powerful story. Uh, you may be seated. Thanks so much. Well, Christmas uh, is a time of wonderment and joy for many, many people. And of course, a time of sadness and hardship and grief. Whatever 
whatever emotions you have uh, during this season becomes amplified, of course, because of the unique pressure points created by the holiday. But uh, basically, it's an opportunity uh, to recognize the best, the best thing about Christmas, which is being with your family. And also the worst thing about Christmas, <laughs> which is being with your family. I mean, every family has one crazy person, right? At least one. Are you think, you're thinking about them right now, aren't you? Now, if, if, if you're thinking about your family and, you're not, and, and someone crazy is not coming to mind, <laughs> you're it. You're the one. And I can tell just by looking at you, some of you qualify. Yeah. Perfectly. But for sure, uh, the greatest gifts at Christmas are the gifts of family, meaningful relationships, and of course, our faith. And everybody wants to feel like they belong, feel like they're loved, part of something important. And Christmas certainly provides that. And at the same time, as I mentioned, every emotion that we have gets highlighted, it gets amplified, it gets blown up, and becomes somewhat challenging. And all of us are filled with some level of self-doubt about whether or not we really are loved, whether we really belong. It happens to all of us. And as a result of that, we, we tend sometimes to have a, a bad instinct about that. We tend to withdraw from meaningful relationships rather than engage them. And this can be true with our relationship with God as well. And so just a heads up, that while this is an opportunity to anticipate and expect great things from God in our lives, uh, celebrating the coming of God to the earth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it can also be a time when we find ourselves drifting away from God, maybe even hiding from God. Say it this way, most of us have no problem believing in God, but struggle to secure an idea that God believes in us. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe God honors, respects, loves, esteems you? Uh, not sure. So we, we struggle there. Christmas, though, of course, is the heralding of God who has come to be with us. This is God who is pursuing us. This is God coming to the earth. This is God choosing to associate with us. This is the incarnation, God taking on flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. This is God seeking to save those who are lost. This isn't about us reaching for God. This is about God reaching for us. And it's a great truth and a great opportunity. So one of the most passionate illustrations of God's love affair with humanity is found in the book of Hosea, a portion of which you've just heard. And this is, as I mentioned, during Israel's last days of growth and prosperity under Jeroboam II, it was a time of prosperity and success and the people had begun to fall away from God, which is often the case in a nation that is prosperous. A dependence on other things occurs rather than a dependence on God in such prosperous, prosperous communities and, and countries. Can I get a witness? And so, and so we understand the times. The book of Hosea then reveals this real-life marriage between this prophet Hosea and his wife, whose name was Gomer. And it becomes an illustration or a metaphor of God's relationship with Israel. 
In fact, all of the orders and commands, directions that God gives to Hosea in his relationship with his wife is, is used purposefully to illustrate God's intentions toward the nation of Israel. And so we have this husband, Hosea, and his wife, Gomer, he representing God in this illustration, and Gomer, his wife, representing the nation of Israel. And not only do we see this comparison, this analogy, but we can apply it to our own lives, that God is in his heavens, like the father, like the husband, and we are his people, like the bride, like his wife, and we too rebel. Now, Hosea was told by God to marry a wife of whoredom. Gomer was a prostitute. God says to Hosea, I want you to marry that prostitute, that whore. And I want you to have children with her. Children of whoredom is the the terminology in in the text. So Hosea knowingly married a prostitute with all of her attendant brokenness and self-doubt whatever wounds were there. And obviously, this girl's got baggage. She's got a story. She's got a past. And it's not been great. And so we see the connection. God chose Abraham, the Jewish people, not because of merit or some kind of moral fortitude. He just chose Abraham. And now this nation, Israel, has emerged. And likewise, he's chosen us in spite of our obvious weaknesses And in addition, God willfully entered into this marriage with us, knowing full well that we would play the harlot, that we would go off whoring as well. So Hosea represents God's relentless pursuing love, and Hosea's wife of prostitution, Gomer, represents God's people, not only the Israelites, but also you and me. Now, of course, I'm not sure what Hosea expected from a wife named Gomer. I mean, golly, (laughs) lower your expectations. If you are not laughing right now because you don't understand the reference, you need to talk to someone who is giggling. You've obviously been living in a cave. So the first thought is our infidelity. After the birth of their three children, Hosea's wife now deserts him. We don't know why she left. We just know she left the loving arms of her husband and abandoned her own children. We don't understand her pain. We don't know her wounds, her distorted self-concept. We don't know. We're, We're not told in the text the specific issues that Gomer had resident in her lives. We don't know why she left. We only know that she returned to the dysfunctioned and the warped search for love, acceptance, and meaning through prostitution. So she didn't merely abandon her family, you know, and go live with another relative. She went right back to the streets. It's shocking. So sad. And she lived with other men. And apparently was at last forced to sell herself as a bondservant. She comes to the end of herself, the the end of her uh, appeal as a prostitute. She has a person of no value. She has no hope. She has no future. And so the only way to sustain herself so she doesn't starve to death is she presents herself at an auction where people are going to be 
sold into slavery. It's horrific. Now remember, this story mirrors our relationship with a loving, accepting God. We are called to love God exclusively, to have no other gods, no other idols before him. And yet at the same time, we are broken, we are diminished, we are distracted by a thousand different forces that occasionally find us running from God and his best plan and purpose for our lives. Gomer's prostitution and adultery represents the idolatry of God's covenant people. As it turns out, we are broken and, and we've made poor choices that ultimately disappoint and grieve God. Nod your head. So in the midst of Gomer's adultery and betrayal and humiliation, God speaks to Hosea. And he tells Hosea, and this is the first verse we read from chapter 3, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Say what? She's living with another man, has had multiple affairs, is now homeless, penniless, has to present herself for auction as a common slave. And God says to Hosea, her husband, go to the slave auction in front of the whole community, knowing full well the embarrassment and shame it will bring you, and buy her back. Take her back. Make her the mother of your children again. Bring her back to your home. Bring her back to your bed. Love her just the way God loves Israel. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's even possible for us to put ourselves in a situation like that or imagine it. But I can, I can comprehend reacting to that. You're more like Jesus than I am. I, I could hear myself going, are you kidding? Seriously. Are you kidding? I think the kids, kids and I have had just about enough of her. I mean, fool me once. Shame on me, right? Shame on you. But I'm not going to be fooled again. So here I am. I don't think so. Yet what we find here is a scandalous biblical account testifying to the outrageous pursuing love of God for a broken world. It's outrageous. This story is scandalous. This is the Christmas story unsanitized. It's not cute and fluffy. It's ugly and nasty and painful. This is the desanitized version. So God loves us and wants us even while we remain under the influence of unworthy lovers ourselves, such as greed or selfishness or addiction or deceit. So God has come to buy us back. We're lost, undone, without hope, no future, destitute. And yet God still loves us and wants to buy us back. This is amazing. Scandalous is what it is. It's outrageous. It's stunning. The love of God. Do you believe in it? 
So here's what we have to do in response to it. It's the second idea on this message. It's on your outline in the app. You got to trust the promise. Mary, the mother of God, you remember this teenage girl. She had every reason to feel betrayed, even abandoned by God. She's a teenager. She's unmarried. She's pregnant. There are these layers of economic and social complexity attached to her life now, legal ramifications all the way to the potential of her being stoned to death under current law. Nevertheless, Mary clung through all of this confusion, all of this threat, hung on to, clung to, trusted in the promise of God. She, she held on tightly to the angel's word who, when he first greeted Mary to give her the news of this preg- pregnancy that would come upon her, said to her, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Really? Seems like my life was going along a lot easier when the Lord wasn't with me. So Mary hung on to the promise of God and she responded with this song, this song of daring, boundless faith. Imagine the level of trust would be required for her under those circumstances to offer this Magnificat. We find this in Luke chapter one, verses 46 to 49, concluding with my soul glorifies the Lord. Who is that girl? Amazing. Wow. How can you have such faith under these circumstances? So here's my question to you today. Do you trust God's promise to redeem your life? Do you trust him to love you and want your love in return, no matter what kind of a mess you've made out of your life? Do you trust him? It's a hard question. It's a challenging question. Do you dare? Do you dare believe that he can do what he says and he can redeem even the darkest, most difficult challenges. In the world, every day, there are approximately 385,000 children born. 385,000, every day. On November 14th, just a couple of weeks ago, Analia Acevedo Castaneda was one of them. Little girl was born, one of the 385,000 born that day, but she was probably the only one born on an airplane. Her mother was on a flight from Mexico to North Carolina, and about an hour into the flight, she went into early labor. There was a nurse on the plane that cared for her until they landed at Atlanta International Airport. She was sprawled out on the floor in the back of the plane. When the plane landed, the paramedics came on and decided that they should deliver this baby right now, which they did. All the passengers still on the plane, out on the tarmac. And as soon as the baby was born, the flight attendant, one of them, picked up the PA and announced to everyone, we have a baby girl. And everyone, you can imagine, went, yay! Mother and baby are fine. Analia is here. It's a good day. Of course, in America, if the mother had chosen abortion... This little baby girl would have become a fetus during that abortive process, and her life would have ended in a legally protected act here in America. However, if her mother, Analia's mother, had been assaulted and murdered while pregnant with Analia, and both her mother and Analia, as a result of her mother's death, 
Analia also died. The law suggests then that the perpetrator of this murder would not only be responsible for the mother's death, but also for the death of the unborn child. This is uh, the tragic contradiction, the, the, the tragic hypocrisy inherent in Roe versus Wade and the abortion license that it grants in this country. Let me remind you that if Analia's mother simply gave birth to her as she did, or if Analia's mother had been murdered and Analia with her, or if Analia had been aborted before she was born, nothing in any of those three scenarios, nothing absolutely whatsoever would have changed with regard to Analia. She's still an innocent baby waiting to be born. As you know, the United States Supreme Court heard arguments this past week regarding a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. We should pray as the Supreme Court deliberates over this case, probably not to be decided, the results of which coming out sometime late in June, early July, as is the custom. So we should be praying that these justices would have the wisdom of God and then the courage to do the right thing. And for those justices who do not have a biblical worldview or a godly moral compass with regard to this issue, that God would change their minds and hearts. We should pray. Legalized abortion is a tragic symptom of the foundational spiritual disease in our culture. The fact that we're even having this debate shows how far our culture has moved from biblical truth, biblical values, and God's design and plan for humanity. According to the word of God, every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. That's a fact. Genesis 1:27. Each of us can say with the prophet, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name, Isaiah 49, verse 1. And the Lord loved us while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, and rejoices over us with gladness today, Zephaniah 3, 17. He has a unique and providential purpose for each of us from the moment of our conception, Jeremiah 1, 5. So if we viewed life as he does, Rather than debating the status of preborn children, we would be celebrating the miracle that every baby is as it comes into this world and celebrating our own lives as well. That's where an amen goes. Brendan Manning was right when he wrote, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. And indeed, every human life, no matter its state or condition, is absolutely sacred and holy before God. A gift of life is the most sacred of all the gifts of God. And we should honor it and esteem it. By the way, when was the last time you were bewildered by your father's love for you? Or stunned or astonished or amazed at the scandalous love of God made available to all of us. 
His love is amazing. It never runs out. It never fails. You might find yourself at this point in your life in a challenging, frustrating season. Savings maybe have been stripped away, your college funds eroded, foreclosure on a home, retirement plans put on hold, upheaval in your family, faced with life-threatening illness. Maybe you've experienced death in your family or with a loved one, the severe consequences of addiction, pain of divorce. All of these issues and more have the potential to utterly devastate our lives. Maybe it's hard for you to hear some preacher like me today say, you're favored, you're blessed, you're a child of God, God is with you. Rather, in your case, you've been listening to the Lord of lies, the father of lies, who tells you you've royally screwed up, you've disappointed God, you're not favored by God and you never will be. You've made a mess of your life and there's no recovery. Let me just remind you about a character named David, became king of Israel. And David succumbed to the temptation of adultery and had a salacious affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And then to cover up his sin, he conspired to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. And all of that was successful. So here's David, who's described in in the scripture as a man after God's own heart, who commits adultery, conspiracy, and murder on his sin resume. It's ugly and it's horrible. And yet somehow God worked that out as David's heart turned to repentance and godly sorrow for his sin and God restored his life and returned him to a vital faith that expressed itself with gratitude and worship. If you're a person today in a season that makes it virtually impossible for you to imagine God's love for you or our hopeful future for you, could I just encourage you to seek the peace of God and to not give up? Don't get stuck where you are. You may look at me today and, and with some energy say to me, listen, you don't know my story. I am going through hell. All right. But hear your statement. You said you're going through hell. Here's my counsel to you. Don't get stuck. Keep moving. You're going through hell. Just keep going. Keep moving. And you'll pop through the other side you'll discover that God is faithful and that he can take the darkest and deepest things in your life and redeem them for his purposes and for your good. Those who have messed up the most, the Bible says, respond the best. The Bible actually says it this way, the one who is forgiven most loves the most. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that amazing? It's remarkable. Jay Harvey was here in first service today and he told me between services that Our associate, Kelly Barkle, is planning a church in Daytona in that CrossFit Center, went into Lancaster Prison in Florida with Jay last week, and we propped up uh, Kelly Barkle, who has a story. I mean, he has got a sordid past. It's like you talk about a wasted youth. I mean, Kelly was was, was raised in a very difficult environment, and boy, he was hard hard to manage. He was in lots of trouble. And here he is, God has gotten a hold of his life, and given him meaning and purpose, and his love for Jesus is off the charts. Because to whom much is forgiven, much love results. Isn't that wonderful? And so Kelly's like a natural standing up in prison, telling his story, and leading men to Christ. How great is that? That's called a redeemed life. That's called a redemptive purpose 
And God's in that kind of business, and I want you to be encouraged by it. So trust in the promises he's made to restore your life as well. Last thought, we need to practice this kind of scandalous love with each other. There's going to be a role reversal when Jesus comes back. Let me remind you. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you hear that? Hear that juxtaposition? He opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So when Jesus returns, everything's going to get flipped on its head. The humble, for example, they know they're handicapped. The humble person knows that they, they need God's mercy. They also realize they're not deserving of it. Oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know where I've been. I don't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve any of God's favor. This is a person who's humble. Have a clear picture of their need. And when Jesus comes back, all of it gets flipped. Let me say it another way. When he comes back, those who have been despised and insulted will be exalted. Those who have been rich and self-consumed will end up poor. You see, things get turned upside down. We can practice God's kind of scandalous love when we see people through the lens of this reversal. So who is it that, that turn out to be God's favorite? God's favorites are those who are humble. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So there are all kinds of people humble around us. There are all kinds of people needy, all kinds of people wounded, all kinds of people who have trashed their lives. And Jesus reminds us, these are the folks that we should extend scandalous love to. Let me, let me just uh, tell you about our Christmas offering this year. We take up one special offering every year. It's at Christmas. In two weeks, I'll preach a sermon called, Christmas is not your birthday. <laughs> I can't wait. It's so much fun. Because <laughs> Christmas isn't our birthday. So let's, let's honor Jesus. And one of the ways we can do that is with a Christmas offering. So this year, the Christmas offering will go to the Blood and Fire Christmas store. This is a store that is stocked with Christmas gifts for families, underprivileged families. And um, we take $10,000 of the Christmas offering and stock the Christmas store. About 300 kids get Christmas because of that. Isn't that nice? Doesn't it feel good? The, the second one, the second designation is going to be um, um, the Light Their Path Children's Bibles. Never can remember the name of that. Light Their Path. See how easy that is? Children's Bibles. This uh, was started by a small group in our church a few years ago. Thousands of children's Bibles have been distributed around the community and other parts of the world. It's just so great. So some thousands of dollars will go for that. Then we have a ministry to the uh, recovery home in Winchester, the Winchester House. This is a recovery home for women and their children. And it's a wonderful ministry that just nurtures these women as they're in recovery. Uh, most of our recent baptisms, adult baptisms here, uh, have included one or two of the women from the Winchester House. Lives are being transformed. It's a beautiful thing, just so powerful. And then the last thing is going to go toward the recovery home that we're building for men here in Muncie. We've been talking about it for a few years now, and this will be the third year. And there's good news. We've just, you know, COVID threw everything off, material costs, supply chain, you know. And so, so 
we have just finalized plans as of this past week. Very excited to announce this. We're not gonna, we're not gonna renovate an old house down in the neighborhood. We're gonna build a new house down in the neighborhood. And we've, we've, it's just as efficient to build something new as it is to remodel something old. And so we're gonna build a home that will have six beds uh, for, for men and, and a resident director there. And we're going to spend about $160,000 on this house. And we'll hire some of the major uh, parts of that construction out. And, uh, and then we'll put some sweat equity in. So there'll be a moment here next year when I say, okay, we need some folks to hang drywall or whatever it is. And, and we'll get in there like a habitat house and build this thing ourselves. We've, we built a habitat house, just our church a couple of years ago. We know how to build houses, so we'll just build another one. <laughs> It'll be great. And so, and, and so that's looking forward to that. So all of that together, our target for the Christmas offering this year is $122,000. $122,000. And that's an ambitious goal. And so you'd be praying about how you can participate in this year's Christmas offering. Now, you'll remember when Mary learned that she was pregnant and she began to suffer some of the social pressure, some of the pushback. Here's this teenage girl who's pregnant. It's, it was very awkward for her. And so she decides to take a trip to go see her cousin, Elizabeth. Do you remember? And Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, goes to greet her cousin, Elizabeth, who's older, but is now pregnant with John the Baptist. And all of this criticism, ostracism, all of this junk that had been thrown at Mary, I imagine Mary didn't know how Elizabeth was going to respond to her. I mean, Elizabeth has a husband. She's all legitimate. She's good to go. So we're not sure what she's going to do when Mary gets there. And when Mary steps in to her home, Elizabeth's home, the first thing out of Elizabeth's mouth is, Blessed are you among women. <laughs> and blessed is the child you will bear. And the Bible reports that the Holy Spirit touched Elizabeth. So much so that John Baptist, who's in utero, leaps within her, touched by the Spirit of God, and reacts to that, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. It's a remarkable moment. I just wonder how many miracles have been aborted because of a put-down or sarcasm or negativity. You know, we can't carry God's miracles full term unless we have support and encouragement and fellowship and accountability that comes from being connected to a network of mature sisters and brothers who encourage us in God's purpose. So let's be promise bearers of that hope. Let's, let's be practitioners of the scandalous love of God. Let's remind people of God's ability to redeem even the most difficult circumstances. No matter how dark, how much despair, how much hopelessness has been created by our poor choices or circumstances foisted upon us. No matter the story, Almighty God is their Redeemer God, and there is nothing beyond His reach to restore and, and restore hope. Isn't that, a, isn't that a fabulous promise? So let's treat one another in the same kind of way, exercising this scandalous love. 
Jesus came to the earth as a tiny baby in humble, scandalous circumstances to redeem and restore broken places, broken hearts. That's the love we celebrate at Christmas. That's what this is all about. And that's the kind of love that we are to show to others in return. Amen. Three statements. Now I'm going to put them on the screen as we conclude. Look at this first one. Question. Do you really believe that God loves you madly, passionately, unconditionally? Do you really believe that? It's true. You want to believe what's true. It's true. If you don't believe it, how do you explain that parent or that spouse or that friend or that child who has loved you that way? If you don't believe it, how can you explain Christmas? There's no explanation for it. Except for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Second statement, look at it. God promises to bring good out of bad, to raise up the lowly, to comfort the afflicted. Here's the question. How would you view your life if you trusted completely in those promises? Would you look at it differently? Would your plans be different? Your attitudes be different? That God has promised to bring good out of bad? It's true. Our God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him. Last question. Look at the screen. What would it mean for us to love others? Scandalously. How would that be different from the safe, cautious ways we tend to show Christ's love on a routine basis? What would it look like to love someone scandalously? You know, like go to that neighbor you hate. They're nasty. You can't stand them. And offer them a word of encouragement or a little gift or an invitation to something special. Maybe a copy of the story. Or that classmate. Or that business associate. Or that family member. How could you express the love of God in a scandalous way toward them? make a difference in their lives. Well, that's the spirit of Christmas. And we thank God for the gift of eternal life that's been offered through Jesus Christ, his son, incarnate in human flesh to show us the way when we didn't deserve any of it. Praise be to God. Scandalous, I say. And thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pause and pray. Now, as we pray, I want you to just use your, use your imagination. Use a sanctified imagination to see this picture. Visualize, if you can, standing on an auction block. I don't know, it's gonna, it's, it'll take a lot of imagination. Imagine standing there. You are the next one in line. You are, you are going to be sold as a piece of property. You have no value. You have no future. You have no hope. 
you are surrounded by the greedy, ambitious, corrupt, perverse. Don't carry that too far. And the bidding begins. And you hear these voices and all of them, they, they, are, they are so offensive. They are so threatening. They are so evil. They're so perverse. You can't imagine what their motives might be. And the bidding slows down. And it's just about to come to a conclusion. And then you hear another voice, another voice. For Gomer, it was her husband, her husband's voice. He makes an offer that tops all the others. In our case, we hear the voice of Jesus. I offer my own life in exchange. Whatever the, whatever the price, I pay it. And you realize your Savior has come to purchase you back. And all the darkness, all the despair, all of the fear, all of the pain is dispelled by light and hope and promise. Thanks be to God. No wonder the angel shouted, glad tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Thanks be to God for this great gift. And everybody said, would you stand with us?